Well, earlier this month, we started a new series. And that new series is about the messes of our lives, how we all make a mess. We all get into somebody else's mess. And so it's called Address the Mess. Uh, and, and God addressed the mess, and we have to address the mess. The mess happens to be a universal condition among all people. Now, you shared some pictures with me along the way. I wish you'd shared a whole lot more, but we got, you know, a, a few pictures of messes along, you know, that's happened around here along the way. One of those happened on the sidewalk out there when uh, the sheriff's department was with us a, couple, uh, a week ago Thursday. But we've been talking about the fact that, <clears throat> that each of us is a mess, has been a <clears throat> mess, or has made a mess because, as I said, being a mess is a universal condition. Every single one of us <clears throat> was born a mess. Every one, single one of us has messed up and probably messed up royally in some phase of our life. Sometimes it might be morally, sometimes it might be in marriage, sometimes it might be in some other relationship, an addiction, in our finances, in our education, on our job, with our families, whatever it might be. But we've all said something, done something, hurt someone, that once it was done, it could not be taken back again. So what I asked you to do over the last couple of weeks, I asked you to regularly confess the mess Whenever you see a mess in somebody else, you know, you're going down, you think, boy, that person is really in trouble. That person is headed for trouble. That person is irritating the daylights out of me. Uh, whenever you run into a situation like that, instead of getting down on them, say something like this. I know a mess <clears throat> when I see one because I am one. I know a mess when I see one because I am one. Or if, you, if that's too strong for you, I know a mess when I see one because I have been one, because I used to be one. You may be in the middle of a mess right now. You may be one stupid decision away from making a mess. Now, we also talked about this fact, that when we make a mess, we often say, nobody's what? Nobody's perfect, right? We've all said that. But nobody's perfect. And when we say that, when we say nobody's perfect, we're confessing something <clears throat> bigger than what we realize. We're, we're saying something that <clears throat> opens up our way to discovering God because what we're really saying is this. There is a perfect that nobody is. If nobody's perfect, there is a perfect that nobody is. There is something bigger than me that I don't live up to. There is something bigger than me that I constantly fall short of. There is something bigger than me to which I am accountable. It's up here, and I'm down here, and I understand that. And also said this, when we acknowledge our mess, <clears throat> we're just a baby step away from acknowledging God in our lives. And Jesus offers himself as the solution for whatever your mess might happen to be. All he says is, trust in me, and then follow me out of the mess. And we can all do that. We do that to start with in our, in our lives. We call it the beginning of the Christian life where we trust in him and then we follow him out of the mess. Or even as, after we've trusted in Christ, if we follow him, we still get into messes uh, in our lives. And he says, follow me out of that. Now, last week we talked about the fact, this fact. Jesus loves the little messes, all the messes of the world, right? And he loves us too much to leave us that way. <laughs> he loves us so much, he won't let us stay uh, in that mess. And we said this, Christianity is an inside-out faith. That is, Christianity is all about <clears throat> what God does on the inside of me 
and that changing the outside of me. And also said this, just throwing a bunch of stuff to bring you up to date. We also said God's not trying to keep you from something. God's not trying to keep you from the same mistake. That's not God's, God's job or even your main thing, keep you from your next, next mess up. What God's trying to do, he's trying to complete something in you. He's working to make you into something that you are not right now. We looked at Philippians 1, 6 where the Apostle Paul wrote this, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ. When you trusted in Christ, if you have done that, God started doing something in you. Now, you may have a real bumpy road. You know, sometimes it goes really well, sometimes it doesn't go well, but God is working in you. And so I asked you last week, I asked you every day this week, and I'm going to ask you to continue to do this, to pray this prayer. Heavenly Father, complete the work you've begun in me. Heavenly Father, I want to cooperate with you in that. I, want to, I don't want to get in the way. I want to cooperate with you, and I ask you to complete the work that you've started in me. Now, as we finish this up today, I just have two thoughts I want to leave with you. The first thought's going to take a little longer than the second thought, but they're both important thoughts, and so I hope you'll, you'll stay with me. The first thought is this. Don't make your mess messier. Don't make your mess messier. <clears throat> Have you ever made a mess worse? You know, you tried to clean it up and it got worse. I always think of paint and mustard in that, you know, paint and mustard. When you got, you spill paint and mustard, you get that on, you get that on the floor, you get that on. It, you just can't clean that stuff up. It just spreads. It gets worse and worse and worse. And of course, paint and mustard are bad, but when our mess is a marriage mess, or a dating mess, or a school mess, some other kind of a relationship mess. What's a financial mess, or a morality mess, or an addiction mess? Uh, whatever it might be, a professional mess, that's worse. And sometimes that's a little harder to, uh, to clean up. Every mess that we get into, and we've all got them, right? Every mess that we get into, sometimes the first options for getting out of that mess are worse than the mess itself. And what looks like the easy thing to do, uh, we do it and just think it worse and worse and worse uh, and worse. You know, borrow more, tell a bigger lie, destroy the evidence, hide, run away, uh, lash out in anger, make them pay for what they did. You know, those kinds of things. So whether your mess was unavoidable or whether you made it yourself, today we're going to talk about this, how to avoid making a messier mess. How to avoid taking the mess I'm in, and, and we got them, and making that mess worse. Now, if you grew up around church, you studied about a guy by the name of David. The giant killing, psalm writing, shepherd king. This guy was talented, and, and God chose him when he was really young. When, when, when David was still very young, still a shepherd, just a little bit before 1000 B.C., probably, the prophet of God by the name of Samuel came and anointed him to be the next king of Israel. Now, the problem was there was already a king in Israel. And so that was the beginning of the mess that this guy got into. And by the way, he was probably 11, 12, 13, probably, when the prophet came and anointed him. While he was still a young shepherd, probably before he was 20, maybe the age of a lot of you kids that are here this morning, he went to the battlefront to check on his brothers. And when he got there, uh, he got involved in a battle with a Philistine giant by the name of Goliath. You know, that's the reason we have Goliath groupers and Goliath stuff, you know, because of that guy, Goliath. After that, 
after David had defeated Goliath, he became very successful in everything he did, really popular. People sang songs uh, about him. And, and the problem was, and, and I don't know if Saul got wind of this or not, but uh, he was going to be the next king, and King Saul was jealous of him. So Saul de devised a devious plan. He said, here's what I'm going to do. I can't really kill this guy. I can't really get rid of him because he's so popular. So I'm going to marry him to one of my daughters, and then I'm going to send him into battle. Uh, and uh, I'm going to let the Philistines, you know, our arch enemies, I'm going to let them kill him for me. So he did that. Uh, but God protected uh, David. He went into battle, and he was always successful. But Saul hated David more and more and more and was always planning to kill, to kill him. So David found himself in the middle of this big mess. It wasn't his fault. He prayed about stuff all the time. You know, he's always praying that God would give him wisdom and put him in the right place. He didn't ask to be anointed king. He didn't ask to become the king's son-in-law. He didn't ask to be adored by all the people. When he killed Goliath, he was just trying to serve his God and his country. When he led armies into battle and they were successful, he was just trying to serve his God and his country. Uh, but no matter what he did, things just got worse and worse and worse. And King Saul hated him more and more and more. And then one day Saul lost it. David was hard. He played the harp. He was playing his harp uh, and probably singing uh, in the same room with King Saul. And Saul was over there and he had a spear in his hand. And he was just holding that spear and playing with that spear. And he got madder and madder and madder and just lost it. He took that spear and threw it across the room. I had no idea how big the room was. Threw it across the room and tried to kill David. Now David was able to dodge the spear, but that was kind of it. He ran for his life, and he continued to run for his life for as long as Saul lived. So Saul chased after David from then on. We're getting to the part we're going to read in the Bible here in just a second. Every time Saul would hear a rumor about where David was, he'd try to kill him. Meanwhile, David had to move into the desert and live as an outlaw. He gathered a band of Saul's enemies together, discontented men, kind of like a band of merry men. And marry women and marry children. They had a village and they lived together uh, in the wilderness. And here's what the scripture says in 1 Samuel 24 1. Now it happened <clears throat> when Saul had returned from following the Philistines that it was told him, saying, Take note, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then, verse 2, Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. Now, Stop right there. So Saul is off fighting the Philistines. Think Klingons when you hear Philistines, right? Think Klingons. They're the arch enemies. They're the, they're the, they're the people that we're always fighting against. And when you think about En Gedi, En Gedi is, uh, is actually an oasis. But around the oasis of En Gedi, you see there's a waterfall there. There's those uh, 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 caves all around. This is a modern picture, but it would have been very similar then. And he, he was known that he was at the rocks of the wild goats. And there are these wild goats that also live in that area even today. And so Saul is off on the east, uh, on the Mediterranean coast, the west coast of Israel. And he's fighting the Klingons, you know, the, the, uh, the Philistines. And he gets back from war and somebody says, David is over on the east side uh, near the Dead Sea. So he takes off immediately after him. And 1 Samuel 24, 3 says this, so he came for the, to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave. And Saul went in to attend to his needs. He had to use a restroom. He went into the cave to do that. 
David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. So Saul goes into the cave to use the restroom. David and his men are hiding back in the back of this cave. What are the odds of that happening? What are the odds? All these caves, there's a bunch of caves. What are the odds that the very cave where David and his men are hiding are the cave where Saul goes in, unprotected, all by himself, uh, to relieve himself? If ever there was a God moment, if ever there was a time when God was at work, it was this particular moment. Verse 4 says this, Then the men of David said to him, This is the day. This is it, bud. This is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, that you may do with him as seems good to you. After years of running, David, after years of living in these caves, after years of being separated from our families from time to time, after years, and you keep telling us that, that don't worry, God will take care of us and God will deliver our enemy into our hand. Now, you, now's the time. There he is. He's unprotected. He doesn't know that we're here. You can cut off his head and you can hold that head up. I'm making this part up. You can hold that head up and walk out triumphantly. But you can imagine that, right? Those guys, they just wanted to, they wanted to get Saul, get him by the hair of the head, walk out and hold that head up before uh, the armies that are out there and they will all follow you. David, I think, got caught up in the moment and he uh, quietly, he's creeping quietly through that cave. Now Saul's probably near the entrance, you know, where there's still light coming in. His eyes aren't used to the light. David and his guys are in the back where it's dark and they've become accustomed to the light uh, in the cave. So uh, he, uh, I believe he's crawling towards King Saul and he's all worked up in this and he said, I'm going to do to him what he intended to do to me. Now let's just take a break there for a minute because I want to talk to you about this word and the word is virtue. The word is about doing the right thing. Virtue is integrity. Virtue is honesty. Virtue is patience. Virtue is self-control. Virtue is goodness. Uh, virtue is important. Doing the right thing is important in every situation. It, it should be the first thing we think about. Now, if you ignore virtue, you will eventually make a mess. Might be a little mess, might be a big mess, everybody might know, nobody might know, but if you ignore virtue, you will eventually make a mess. Every mess is caused by someone's failure in the area of virtue. You ignore virtue in a relationship, you have a relationship mess. You, you ignore virtue in finances, you have a financial mess. Professionally, you have a professional mess, an academic mess. Eventually, you're going to make a mess. And you can't clean up a mess caused by a failure of virtue by another failure of virtue. In other words, two wrongs don't make a right. In every mess, as I said a while ago, there are options that seem to be quick fixes. Every mess has some bad options. They always involve a failure of virtue. I'll lie my way out of this. I'll cheat my way out of this. I'll steal just a little bit more to get out of this. I'll borrow a little bit more. I'll make him pay. I'll treat her like she treated me. Uh, you, there's Saul. You can do with him as you choose. So David, let's think about, keep in mind this, this idea of virtue. So David is crawling quietly, secretly, stealthily 
has his knife in his hand, maybe he has it in his teeth, I don't know if he was doing the pirate thing or not, but he's got a knife, and he's crawling stealthily towards Paul, evidently, I mean towards Saul, evidently intending to kill the king. Somewhere between when he started and when he got to Saul, to Saul however, he started thinking, what am I doing here? What am I doing? This man is appointed by God. Here, this is God's guy. He may not be doing the right thing, but this is the guy that God put, this is my father-in-law. This is my wife's dad. This is my children's grandfather that we're talking uh, about here. So somewhere along the line, he said, I'm about to make the mess even messier by killing God's anointed king. Now, would he have been justified in that? Well, most people say, yeah, uh, you know, God's been trying to kill him for years. Uh, did everybody who was there want him to do it? Yeah, they did. They were all saying, go get him, go get him. And if you don't, we will. But was it the right thing to do? Was it the virtuous thing to do? Seemed like, you know, God put him here, right? Seemed like it was the obvious thing to do. But when he started thinking about the principles of virtue, uh, it, he realized it wasn't. So he kept creeping closer and closer. We get back to verse 4. The men of David said to him, This is the day of which the Lord said to you, This is the day, creeping closer. Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand that you may do to him as it seems good to you. And David rose secretly and cut off, not his head, but he cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He crept up. I think he was going to kill him to start with, and he changed his mind along the way. Virtue intervened. And that's our dilemma, because every mess that we're in comes with some bad options. Every mess that we're in, there's some things that if we go in that direction, we're going to make a bad situation even worse. We're not following God out of it. The men that were with him in the cave could not believe that, that David did what he did. David returned to him, 1 Samuel 24, 5. Now it happened afterward that David's heart troubled him. His conscience got to him because he had cut Saul's robe. Because if you attack anything that belongs to the king, you've attacked the king. Verse 6, and he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing that he's the anointed of the Lord. And the men must have been saying to him, well, if you can't do it, we will. If you can't do it, we would love to do it. It won't bother our conscience. I say that because verse 7 says, so David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went his way. Now, what happens next is really what makes this story important. So if you kind of get that picture of those caves, and he's up in a cave, and he's kind of elevated, and he crawls out of the cave, and he's making his way, uh, making his way down. And uh, uh, his men are waiting. There's 3,000 guys down there. They're waiting, and they hear a voice from behind them. And when that voice spoke, it wasn't God, it was David. When that voice spoke, everybody in Saul's army immediately knew what had not happened, you know, that their king had not been killed. Verse 8, 1 Samuel 24, 8. David also rose after and went out of the cave and called to Saul, saying, My Lord the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped 
with his face to the earth and bowed down. David called out his name and then he fell on the ground and, and, and paid obeisance to the king. And he gave a speech, and this is just part of the speech. Verse 10 says, David said, look, this day your eyes have seen the Lord deliver you today into my hand in the cave. Today, God put you in a place where I could have killed you. And somebody urged me to kill you. But my eye spared you. That is, I looked and I realized I was doing the wrong thing. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against the, my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. This guy was put there by God, and, and God can take care of this situation. Verse 11, moreover, my father, see. Yes, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For in that I cut off the, the corner of your robe and did not kill you, know and see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand, and I have not sinned against you, yet you hunt my life. And David put everything in God's hands after that. You know, a lot of times we just want to control it, we want to hurt somebody, and we want to do this, we want to do that. But notice how David just put everything in God's hands. Twenty four twelve, let the Lord judge between you and me. Let God determine who's right. I'm not going to determine that. Let God determine you, between you and me, and let the Lord avenge you. Let God punish whoever needs to be punished, but my hand shall not be against you. That's what God teaches in Scripture, right? That uh, uh, we shouldn't personally avenge ourselves. We don't lash out at people. Verse 15, 1 Samuel 24, 15, Therefore, let the Lord be judge, and judge between you and me, and see and plead my case, and deliver me out of your hand. Let the Lord judge. Let the Lord take vengeance. Let the Lord be the one that delivers me. I am not going to step into God's situation. And by the way, seven chapters later, Saul and his sons are in a battle with the Philistines again, and a random Philistine arrow pierces his armor, and he dies on the battlefield, and David becomes king of Israel. And how different would it have been had he had to tell his grandkids, yeah, your, your granddad was, you know, relieving himself in the cave and I slipped up behind him in the dark and slit his throat and that's how I became king. But instead, he got to say I, I, to his grandkids, I always did the right thing. I always chose the virtuous path and you know what? God protected me and God delivered me and God provided for me. So remember this. What I'm saying is the way out of your mess is to trust Christ and to follow him, make virtuous decisions, even if they're difficult. Remember this, no mess lasts forever. No mess lasts forever. Eventually, your mess is just reduced to a sentence or two. Five years ago, I went through a really terrible divorce. Two years ago, I had to drop out of school. Last week, I cheated on my test. Four years ago, I got arrested. Three years ago, I had to file bankruptcy. I got fired from my job. These statements don't tell the story of you. All right? They're messes that happen. They don't tell the story of you. The real story, the real story isn't your mess. It's how you respond to your mess. The real story isn't your mess. It's how you respond to your mess. What you do about your mess becomes the permanent part of your life. That's true of everything. You know, how do you respond to it? Every mess comes with a prepackaged list of bad options. And if you choose a bad option, the mess just gets worse. So, as it says on the bottom there, don't choose an option that makes you a liar. Don't choose to do the wrong thing and then try to cover it up for the rest of your life. Instead, always choose 
the virtuous option. I told her the truth. I turned myself in. We cut up our credit cards, and that was it. I went to the dean. I apologized. I started studying like I had never studied before. You're a mess. I'm a mess. Everybody is a mess, has been a mess. We'll make a mess in the future, probably. It's how we address the mess that determines the story of our lives. And Jesus invites us to follow him out of the mess. And when you do, he promises to be responsible for the outcome. And that's the way we address the mess. And that's what we've been talking about all month. Now, I said two thoughts. And I have to give you this other thought, even though I know the hour is late. The other thought is this. It comes from the title of a book by John Hambrick. It's called Move Toward the Mess. Now, I'm not endorsing this book in that I agree with everything in it, but it's a really good book. I would recommend that you give it a try. Here at Milestone, we've adopted a saying, and that saying is this, love is the law. Not unique to us, but, but we try to let that guide everything we do. Love is the law. To some extent, it's based on a conversation Jesus had with, an, with a lawyer in Matthew 22, where the lawyer said, what's the greatest of all the commandments? And Jesus said, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and all thy mind. Uh, that's the first, and that's the greatest. And the second is like the first, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And uh, uh, the reason it's like the first is because you can't love the Lord your God without loving your neighbor as yourself. The two go hand in hand. And you can't love God and hate your neighbor. Uh, and so that's kind of the thing we talked about last week. Last week I said this. I said the essence of Christian maturity, Christian maturity, is not our invisible love for our invisible God. Oh, I love God. I love God. I love God. You know, my heart just belongs to God. I'm all about God. That is not the essence of growing in Christ. The essence of Christian maturity is when a person can love another person that is difficult to love. That's the essence of Christian maturity. Now, sometimes we see a mess, and that mess is so messy that we go the other way. You know, we just take off in the other direction because we just don't want to deal with that mess. But Jesus calls us to move toward the mess. On a different occasion than the one in Matthew 22, Jesus responded to another lawyer in connection with the same command, love your neighbor as yourself. And that lawyer asked this question in Luke 10:29. But he, wanting to justify himself, he didn't really want information, he just wanted to make himself look good, find a loophole in the law. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is, must be locking up back there, and who is this neighbor that I am supposed to be uh, 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 loving as myself? And rather than answering the question, Jesus did what he often did, he told a story because the the answer was way bigger than the question was. And so Luke chapter 10, verse 30, we're going to read these verses quickly. Then Jesus answered and said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothes. Clothes were very valuable. Everybody didn't have a, clo a closet full of them. Uh, wounded him de and departed, leaving him half dead. Verse 31, now by chance, a certain priest came down the road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. He saw the guy in the ditch over there, but he went by on the other side of the road. Likewise, verse 32, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. That's like, you know, the pastor and the, the youth guy, you know, the pastor and the staff member, the pastor and the deacon, you got the, the priest and the Levite. But verse 33 says a certain Samaritan, these people that, you know, that were from up north that they hated, uh, but a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And those verse 34 so says, so he went to him. He went to him. Instead of going in the other direction, he 
moved toward the mess. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, took care of him. Verse 35, on the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. And whatever more you, you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. And then Jesus broke off from the story. He turns and he looks at that attorney, that lawyer, in Luke 10, 36. And he said, ask this question. And he asked us, so which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among thieves? Thou shalt love thy neighbor. Who was the neighbor involved here? Verse 37, and he, the, the lawyer said, he who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. The question is, how do we do that? How do we go and do likewise? Well, we move toward the mess and we do it one mess at a time. It might be a homeless mess, might be a hungry mess, might be a prison mess, might be an adulterous mess, might be a rich mess, might be uh, any kind uh, of a mess. Might be a stinky mess. Sometimes the messes are just, you can't hardly stand to be around it. But, and, and here's what we know about a mess and dealing with a mess. Number one, it's inconvenient. We have to get out of our schedule. Number two, it's not comfortable. We have to get out of our comfort zone. And number three, it, it's something we can't control, so we have to be in an uncontrollable situation. I love the subtitle of that book, uh, uh, Move Toward the Mess, because the subtitle is The Ultimate Fix for a Boring Christian Life. You know, a lot of people get bored with their Christian life. They think it's their church's fault. So they go find them another church uh, that they can attend. Uh, and, uh, but, you know, it's usually not the church at all. It's the fact that I'm just lazy, and I'm just living the comfortable life, and I'm not moving toward the mess, because when you move toward the mess, you may not like it all the time, but it's exciting, but that'll bring a little excitement, that'll do away with the boredom uh, in your life. So, uh, and by the way, think about this, uh, <clears throat> outside of your comfort zone, you know, your comfort zone is, is, where you, is where you rest, it's where you relax. Outside of your comfort zone is where you serve and where you live and what makes life ex exciting. So three more quick real thoughts. I don't comment on, on them much, but I want to say this. Number one is this, move toward a mess, not every mess. God puts a mess in front of you. Move toward a mess, not every mess. I mean by that, if you try to handle every mess, you'll burn out and you'll kill your family. Move toward, and you'll be able to find a mess. You know, there's a mess around you. God has one for you. But move toward a mess, not toward every mess. Uh, Ron, for Ron, he's moving toward the hungry mess uh, in the city of Pensacola. For Cassie, who's in children's worship, uh, she's moved toward the at-risk mother mess in the city of Pensacola. For the group from Lowen Oak, they're moving toward uh, the kid mess that's around this church uh, over in the city of of New Orleans. We all have a mess. So move toward a mess, not every mess. Second thing I want you to notice is this. Don't wait. Go now. Don't wait. Don't. Uh, the time will never come where it's going to be comfortable, convenient, and you'll feel like you're qualified. Uh, just go and do it. Don't try to get your, whole, your own mess cleaned up completely. Uh, you don't wait for that because that may never come. Uh, because the third thing I want to mention is this. God uses messy people. So address the mess. Address the mess. Uh, first of all, don't make the mess messier. Uh, choose to do the virtuous thing. Choose to do the right thing, not the convenient thing. And then secondly, to all of us, I say move toward the mess. That's what we need to be doing. Move toward the mess. Get involved in people's lives. Sometimes you wish you were not there. If you don't wish that every once in a while, you're probably not where you, you should be. But move toward the mess. Let's pray. Father, I know you're here with us today, and I thank you for that. 
Uh, I thank you that Jesus moved into the chaos of this world. If he hadn't done that, we'd all be going to hell today. But I thank you that Jesus moved into the chaos of this life. And, I, and he addressed the mess, the mess that is me, and the mess that's everybody else here in this building this morning. Would you grant us the grace, first of all, to follow Jesus and, and make good decisions, but to think about others, to address the mess, to move toward the mess in other people's lives. We love you. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand together? Let's sing.